Good evening. Uh, welcome to our Wednesday Night Fellowship again. My name is John. I'm the campus pastor here for RUF. I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, a couple of Saturdays ago, my family, we went to the Champlain Valley Fair. Did any of you happen to go? All right, a couple. I'll be totally honest. I'm not a huge fair guy. Like, it's okay. I like it enough. Um, but I really love going to the fair with my six-year-old daughter, Willa. Like, when you go to the fair with a six-year-old, everything is awesome. It's like you've been zapped into that opening scene of the Lego movie, right, where everything is awesome. Like, the fried food, the sketchy rides, the trapeze artists, the racing pigs, the ponchos with the howling wolves on the front, even that funnel cake that costs $37. Like, everything is awesome, like, when you're at the fair with a six-year-old. But if everything's awesome at the Champlain Valley Fair with your daughter, with mine, the most awesome thing that I got to experience this year was something that was actually tucked away in a little corner of a huge convention center. You had to go beyond the state's largest pumpkin, which weighed over 1,000 pounds. You had to go beyond the state's tallest sunflower, which was over 17 feet high. It was incredible. But sort of sandwiched between these sort of monstrosities, right, this huge pumpkin, this huge sunflower, was this humble collection of bonsai trees. Now, these bonsai trees, for me, at least, were like an oasis in a sea of chaos and noise. Everything that was, like, blinking and flashing and, like, screaming for my attention. Like, everything is awesome. Look how tall I am. Look how big I am. Look how awesome I am. Like, amidst all of that hustle and bustle, amidst all of that noise were these bonsai trees. And once I happened upon them, I didn't want to leave them. There was something about these trees that were so beautiful and calming and arresting that it made me feel blessed. That I was better for having seen those trees and I was simply better for having been near it. Better for seeing it, better for being near it. And here's why I bring up these bonsai trees. All year long, we're asking this question, what does it mean to live the good life? A so-called blessed life, the kind of life that you want more than you know. It's the kind of life Jesus says he has the power to give you. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, he says, I have come to give you life, life to the fullest. And that sounds pretty good, right? Life to the fullest. That sounds great. What is that and how do I get some? Well, the picture the Bible paints for us of the good life is a very similar picture to the one I've maybe painted for you of these bonsai trees uh, at the Champlain Valley Fair. It's a picture of tree. uh, It's a picture of a tree planted by streams of water. Uh, And because this tree is so well rooted, it remains green and good and fruitful, even in times of drought, even in times of sickness and setbacks and suffering. It's still green. It's still good. It's still fruit bearing. Uh, the, the picture of the good life is similar to the one that's painted for us here by Jesus and the story that he tells in Mark chapter 4. The good life is a well-rooted life. It's a life with hidden support systems. But that's not all. It's a life that's weeded and pruned. It's a life that's lived in community. We'll flush that out some. But what's more, it's a, a life that is good and beautiful and fruitful. It's not just hashtag blessed. It's a blessing. It's a life that when you come into contact with it, you're better simply for having been near it. 
I think deep down inside, this is the kind of life that you want. I can say for myself, this is the kind of life that I want. And granted, it's a countercultural vision, right? The, the good life, the, the life that's painted for us by Jesus, it's not super flashy. It's not screaming for your attention. It's not the Instagram equivalent of that thousand pound pumpkin or that 17 foot sunflower, whatever that may be, right? Maybe a million dollar mansion, six pack abs, right? Those exotic vacations, right? Like Pinterest perfect, kinfolk perfect. It's, it's not like that. It's more like these bonsai trees, a life that can be both small and awesome at the same time. A life that's not just blessed, but is also a blessing. And maybe you've come into contact with a life like that, right? Maybe you've, you've had experience, you've bumped into someone, or you know someone whose life is just marked with a, a rare beauty and poise and wisdom and joy. Maybe that person's in your family, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's even just a stranger you met on the street or in the checkout aisle of your grocery store. You come into contact with it and you're like, I'm better for having been near this person. Their life isn't charmed, right? They've seen and tasted suffering too, but for all the sickness and suffering and setbacks, they've remained green. Their life is still full of good fruit. And when you taste and you see of their goodness, you can't help but want some for yourself. How do I get a life like this? How do I get a life like that? We saw last week that the good life, the blessed life, is ultimately a life that's tethered to God. It's a a life of faith and trust. And we saw, too, that it's a life that begins with a seed and it begins with a sower. Jesus explained, hey, I'm that sower and the seed is my word. God is the sower. The seed is his words. But as we begin to unpack the story in greater detail, I want you to see tonight that not only do we need a sower and not only do we need seed. Right. Not only do we need God and his word to touch our lives, we need to be open and receptive to what he has to say. His word has actually got to get inside of us. It needs to get inside of you. It needs to penetrate your hearts. The first group of people that Jesus describes in this story are those that are likened to a path. You can see that in your passage before you. These are people who hear God's word. They've heard it, but that word never gets inside. They are like a path, packed down and hardened. Now, birds eventually come and take the seed away from these people. Right? And Jesus explains what that means. But the only reason they can do that is because the seed doesn't go anywhere. It just sits on the surface, as it were. It never gets inside. That word, that seed, it just bounces off them, right? you could say. Now, there's a lot Jesus wants to say to us from the story. But what he wants to communicate to you tonight is this. If you want to live a good life, a life that's not just blessed but a blessing, you need to be open to who God is. And what he has to say to you. And you need to do more than just hear his words. You got to listen to him. You got to get God's word inside of you. You need to mold it over. You need to take it to heart. Stated negatively, the biggest threat to your spiritual life, and not just your spiritual life, the biggest threat to you living the good life, it's being closed-minded. It's being hard-hearted. It's being hardened. 
It's being so busy or so cynical or so perfectionistic that God's word can never get inside, that there's just no room, that his his word just bounces right off of you. And that's what I want to talk to you all about tonight. What prevents God's word from getting inside of our lives, inside of our hearts, and what can we do about it? Maybe the number one obstacle to the good life is your business. You're simply too much in a rush. You've got too much on your plate to simply slow down and pay attention to what God has to say to you. I venture for most, if not all of us here, this is the number one obstacle. It's our business. When I ask so many of you, like, how are you doing? You know what the most common answer is, right? It's I'm busy. We're all busy. Now, to be fair, some of you really do have a lot to do. You're working two jobs, or maybe you're in six classes. You've got like 18 credit hours, and you're juggling an uh, an internship on the side. I mean, if busyness means having a life that is full of things that matter, Jesus himself was busy. The problem is not having a lot of things to do. The problem is when you have too much to do. And the only way to keep up is to hurry. See, Jesus was busy, but Jesus was never in a hurry. When people tell me, when you tell me that you're busy, I very rarely hear you communicate, my life is full of things that matter. That's typically not what you mean when you say, I'm so busy. Most of the time, what gets communicated is, my life is full of chaos and noise. I'm so busy. When people tell me they're busy, I'm not hearing, I'm so glad I get to do lots of good things. More often than not, I'm so busy means I'm overwhelmed and I'm barely treading water. I'm too, I'm too little butter spread over too much toast. Life feels out of control. It feels frenzied. I feel hurried and I feel harried. I'm so busy. Hurry and love are incompatible, writes John Mark Comer in this book right here. Um, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I can't recommend this book highly enough. It's one of the best books I've read in the past five, ten years. I mean, it's that good. Um, Pick this up. It's really great. A lot of what I have to say about this is indebted to him. He says in his book, all my worst moments are when I'm in a hurry. All my worst moments are when I'm in a hurry. When I'm late for an appointment, behind on my unrealistic unrealistic to-do list, trying to cram too much into my day. He essentially says, like, I suck in those moments. I'm I'm not loving. I think we can all relate. Right? You get us at our worst often when we're in a hurry. And the problem is compounded by our devices. Because it's not only are we trying to cram too much into our days. As we go from one thing to the next, we cram those in-between spaces in our downtime with Netflix and TikTok and all kinds of other noise. Uh, A recent study found that the average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day. Over 2,000 touches on our phone a day. We do this even now subconsciously. We are glued, addicted to our devices. And when we fill our days like this, running around from one thing to the next with our headphones on and our eyes glued to our screens, it is truly very hard to pay attention to anything, let alone what is going on in our own souls. Here's your million-dollar quote from Catholic writer Ronald Rollheiser. 
He says, today, a number of historical circumstances are conspiring to produce a climate within, which is it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It's not that we have anything against God or depth or spirit. We like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these things show up on our radar. In our busyness, God's word doesn't just fail to show up on our radar. It's like that announcement on the public, you know, the PA at the airport that you hear as you're like running to your your gate to catch your flight, right? You hear words, but nothing registers, right? And like in our rushing around, things just bounce off of us. Nothing computes, nothing connects. Our busyness is one of the chief obstacles to God's word actually entering into our lives. Have I convinced you? Do you like, can you relate? What do we need? We don't need more time, right? Sometimes you hear that, if only I had more time. Wrong. If you had more time, you'd do with that extra time what you're doing already. <laughs> You'll do with extra time what you're doing with the time you've already been allotted. You're going to cram that extra time with more stuff, with more busyness, with more noise. You don't need more time. What you need is a break. You need a break. You need breaks from your work and breaks from your devices. You need to carve out space where, we can, where you can rest and where you can just be and pay attention to the people and the good that surrounds you and that's not just there on your screen. You need time for, to enjoy life and to not just hurry through it, to get to the next thing, right? To be present. We not only need like breaks in our days and breaks from our devices, we, we need retreats. Uh, like the one that we're going on next week, where literally the theme is rest. Like, that is what we're going to be talking about. That's what we're going to get to enjoy. Uh, we've got a special guest who's a dear friend of mine. He's the best man in, our, in, in my wedding. His name's Matt Scott. He's, he's coming up to be with us. And on retreat, we're going to have time to rest and relax and to eat meals together and to get to know one another and to play. But we're also going to get to hear from Matt. He's going to lead us through four sessions on finding rest for our souls and creating, sustaining rhythms uh, for our life. It's going to be really helpful and and hopeful. Because, y'all, in order for God's word to break into our lives, we um, uh, we need to take a break from our busyness. We need to break from our work. We need to break from our devices. But busyness is not the only culprit. It's not the only thing that hardens us, right, to God's word. Cynicism does too. Cynicism does too. What is that? What is cynicism? It's not quite the, like, I mean, it's often compared to skepticism, but it's not the same thing. Cynicism and skepticism aren't the same thing. Uh, A skeptic is someone who might be doubtful or distrusting, but they're open to change. Right? A skeptic is often open to evidence. They will follow the evidence where it leads. And they're willing to be corrected. They're willing to change. But not a cynic. A cynic is someone who sees through everything. They see through generosity and see only some ulterior motive. They see through altruism and they see manipulation instead. 
some sort of power plays uh, at work. They see through kindness and see only self-interest in its place. They see through everything. They discount and they discredit everything. Not only do they do that, seeing through everything or discounting or discrediting goodness and kindness, a cynic also uses irony and sarcasm to diminish other people and other ideas. And they do this without articulating their own. Because that would require courage. Like that would require conviction. And that's often what cynics lack. As poet Maya Angelou writes, there's nothing so pitiful as a young cynic because he's gone from knowing nothing to believing nothing. The problem with a cynic is ultimately a problem with their pride. The cynic thinks too highly of his or her thinking. Like, they like to teach other people, like, it's like this, but they're not very teachable themselves. And they carry this posture into their relationship with God and others and the world. There's nothing out there that's worth listening to. Nothing out there to learn, because I know everything. I see through everything. There are only things to debate and deconstruct. What is the cynic to do? Like, if this is you, uh, if you are someone who has a cynical bent or whose cynicism has hardened you, if, if you can even admit that, what are you to do? Here's my prescription. Get outside and get in touch with something that's way bigger than you. Something that you didn't create and could never get to the bottom of. Get in touch with God's creation. Something that can surprise you and startle you and dazzle you. Get outside and get in touch with the world around. Uh, the, world, uh, the word humility comes from the Latin word hummus, which means earth. A humble person is someone who's low to the ground, is someone who's uh, close to the earth. And that, I think, is what the cynic needs most, to get outside and to get in touch with the earth, with the world that God has made. It's full of beauty and complexity and order. And look, if you can't get outside for whatever reason, stay inside and watch Planet Earth or anything with like David Attenborough in it. Like watch that and let it wow you. Let it humble you. Let it put you in your place. G.K. Chesterton famously said, and I love this quote, how much greater would your life be if you could become smaller in it? How much greater would your life be if you could become smaller in it? And that's kind of what we're talking about, right? Like a good life, a great life. For the cynic, this is your avenue in. Don't just get in touch with God's creation. I encourage you to also get in touch with those things that connect you to your childhood. Uh, That time in your life when you didn't know everything and the world really was full of wonder and awe. Doing things like making giant bubbles on Redstone Quad or riding your bike or going fishing Anything that helps you to remember that the world really is a wonderful, magical place. Anything that can awaken your imagination and break the spell of cynicism. It's like the movie Ratatouille. Have you all seen it? You know what? That cynic critic who, like, when that spoon of Ratatouille hits his, his lips, like it goes in his mouth, 
He tastes and he experiences something that takes him back to his childhood. And that experience softens him. It breaks the spell and it opens him up to a whole new way of being, a whole new way of relating. I hope the same for you. Find you're kind of cynical inside. Busyness and cynicism harden us and they prevent God's word from entering our lives. But last on this list, at least for tonight, last on this list is perfectionism. Perfectionism does this too. And this one is maybe the most obvious. The perfectionist believes that they're perfect, or at least they want you to think that they are. Perfectionism is not the same thing as striving for excellence or striving for excellence. Perfectionism is not about healthy achievement and growth. Uh, this is what Brene Brown writes in her book, Daring Greatly. Perfectionism, uh, it's a defensive move. It's the belief that if we do things perfectly and look perfect, we can minimize or avoid the pain of blame and judgment and shame. Perfectionism is a 20-ton shield that we lug around thinking it will protect us when in fact it's the thing that's really preventing us from being seen. And Brene Brown crushes it on this point. Perfectionism doesn't just prevent us from being seen. It also prevents God's word from getting inside. It's a shield. It blocks. It prevents God's word from getting inside. A word that says, I'm weak and needy, and that's okay. A word that says, I'm beautiful, but not because of my performance, but because I bear God's image. All right, this word that says, I'm a human being before I'm a human doing. And that I'm lovely because I'm loved. A word that says, despite the brokenness of this world, there is beauty in it still. It's not all selfishness and cynicism through and through. It's a world that is loved and is saved and is being redeemed. It's a world full of bonsai trees and butterflies. Of beauty and wonder and awe. It's not all bad. It's not all awful. It's a word that says God saves sinners. The good news of the Bible is not that God comes down from heaven to hand out gold stars. It's the good news that God came to seek and save lost people. That he came to make sick people well. And to bring dead people back to life. I'm a recovering perfectionist. And what I need most of all is what I think all perfectionists need. But it's what we're all afraid of and trying to get away from. We need to experience failure and not be able to hide it. We need to experience suffering and be forced to ask for help. We need what one man called severe mercies. This is kind of a silly example, but I suffered a hamstring tear in this leg right here just days before week of welcome. I was playing pickup soccer with my neighbors, and I tore my hamstring like chasing down a loose ball. 
Now, I'm pretty, I'm like the new kid on the block. Like, we moved into our house like a year ago. And I want my neighbors to think I'm cool. <laughs> and I want my neighbors to see me scoring goals. I don't want my neighbors watching me, like, hobble off the field as I wince in pain and then, like, crawl off the field in my, my hands and knees like a baby. I don't want them to see me that way. <laughs> but that's what they saw. <laughs> If I'm honest with you, I want you to see me in similar ways too. We're still kind of getting to know each other. And it's easy for me to like want to project a front. I want you to see me as cool. I want you to see me as smart and capable and strong. So it was really hard for me. When we went on the hike at Stowe Pinnacle, that first Saturday of the semester, and I couldn't go to the top with you. Like that was hard for me. I don't like being seen as weak or needy or vulnerable. I don't like to be seen as not put together. I want you to see me as the reverse of all those things. But the thing is, that's a lie. The truth is, I don't have it all together. The truth is, I often limp through life. And not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually too. And I often try to hide those things, right? To shield those things from view, But it's really good for me when I can't. It's actually really good for me when I pull my hamstring. And I can't hide that. Or when I make a mistake. And I have to publicly say sorry. It's good when I mess something up. And I've got to ask for forgiveness. All these things. Because it's precisely in those moments. It's precisely in those moments. That the facade of perfection, it falls apart. And I am forced to accept and believe and lean into the truth that I'm okay even when I'm not okay. That I'm okay not because of something in me, but because of something God put inside of me. His word. This word that reminds me that the so-called saints of the Bible, they're not perfect people. They're broken, messed up people who have found and are holding tight to a perfect Savior. Those are the saints. Not perfect people, but those who found a perfect Savior. You all, the good life begins with a sower, and it begins with some seed, but it also begins with an open mind and a soft heart. It begins when we allow God to speak into our lives, and we pay close attention to who Jesus is and what he has to say. A crack in our schedules a crack in our cynicism, and a crack in our perfectionistic armor. As Leonard Cohen sings in his song Anthem, forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That is how the light gets in. Let's pray.